But I tell you, to be a police officer is to live in a constant gray area. So on any given day, a decision that you made that you thought was the right decision can end up being the wrong one. And it can have massive effects on your life and the lives of others. Takeover, the break's over, nigga. God MC, me, J Ho. The takeover, this the hater makeover. If you got clicks with Slim, I suggest you stay sober. Takeover, yeah, the break's over. I'm the god of freestyle, bitch. I'm from the club. What's up? Welcome to the Takeover Podcast Show. This is your boy, Superstar P. And with a little surprise show tonight, hey. I got the man, the owner of Bun Tom's Coffee Bar, what's Marcus up, what's Mitchell. Up, what's, what's up, up what's man? What's up? What's up? Hello, world. With particular, hello, Shreveport. I am Marcus Mitchell. I'm sitting here with the man, Jeff. And I get to get a little alone time on the podcast show. <laughs> Y'all might have heard me a couple of times before, but this is the first time you get to hear me solo. So uh, I'm excited. What's on your mind, brother? Yeah, I know every time we've tried to do this, man, somebody always comes in. Or always, have another special guest. Every guess, so. single time, brother. It, but it, it never works out, but it's okay. We, we had some good shows with it. But, hey, we made some time tonight, so. So, man, first of all, how, how's business? I know you don't start your new breakfast sandwich and everything, so. Man, business is business always good, man. Ever since we first opened, the city has come out and supported us. Without a doubt, um, business is good, man. I can't complain at all. Outstanding. I, you know, I had one of the waffle breakfast sandwiches. You did? Yeah, I had a sneak preview. Let's get this straight right now. This is called a waffle witch. Okay. A waffle witch. <laughs> we don't do breakfast sandwiches. We don't do sandwiches. Take gotcha. the sand out of your witches. Gotcha. Replace it with waffle. We have waffle witches, and they're supposed to be really, really dope. Y'all come out and try it out. We try not to judge our own product. We allow our customers to do that. So y'all come out, try it. Let me know what y'all think about it. Well, I had a waffle witch, and it's good. Yeah? It's filling. Hey. So if you eat that, you ain't got to worry about eating to about hey. dinner time. Well, hey, it filling. comes in a full size, and it comes in a half size. What you've been getting is the half size. So imagine the full size. Two full-size Belgian waffles, seven inches round, stacked and loaded in between with eggs on top of eggs and your choice of meat and cheese and whatever other toppings you might have or whatnot. It's enough to serve a small family. Now, not only are you a business owner, you are also a policeman. Yeah, I'm a police officer, man. I am a police officer. I've been in police capacity for at least... Uh, 15 years now since 2002 is my first foray into police so i've been in some form of law enforcement ever since 2002 okay man uh you know what i thank you for your service you know i, I respect it. what you do because everybody can't be a policeman appreciate it man it's you definitely know. not a profession that's for everybody right everybody right. got an opinion on it everybody thinks that it's easy everybody thinks that the decisions that we make are very clear-cut and black and white but I tell you, to be a police officer is to live in a constant gray area. So on any given day, a decision that you made that you thought was the right decision can end up being the wrong one. And it can have massive effects on your life and the lives of others. Now, speaking on that, when you say you had to make quick decisions, a lot mm -hmm. of decisions, there's been a lot of noise over the last few years about police brutality. Hey. Now, I know there's a fine line between police brutality and protecting your own life to get back home to your wife and kids or kids or, you know, whoever it be. So I just want you to touch on it, your thoughts on it, and, you know, however, you know, whatever you want to go with it. Hey, this is one of those topics that's really been in the public eye as of late or whatnot, and you'd be hard-pressed to find another police officer from a community that has a spike in violence that's willing to speak on that topic, honestly, or whatnot. But I'm here to tell you, Shreveport, I am Marcus Mitchell, and I bite no tongues, I beat no bushes. So I will tell you that police brutality, not, not particularly in our city, I have seen it in our city, don't get me wrong, but police brutality across America is, a, is an issue that needs to be addressed within our police departments or whatnot. And... Uh, don't let anybody convince you otherwise. I am a police officer. I have been a police officer for a long time. Police brutality is a real issue or whatnot, and uh, it's something that needs to be addressed. Now, how is it that we've seen a lot of these unarmed black men and women be killed by the hands of police officers? How is it that all these officers keep getting acquitted? Nobody's been, um, you know, convicted of anything. 
Well, here's the thing, man. Um, when it comes to trying to get a conviction against a police officer, the, the one thing especially the ones where it involves somebody's life being taken or nearly taken or whatnot, and the police officer is able to articulate that their life was in danger. There's no policy, there's no statute, there's no amount of legal recourse that would allow you to tell me that I didn't feel threatened. Even if I created the threatening situation, I could be wrong, I could go, be going on a hunch, I could be arresting the wrong person, but if at any given point I feel like I am threatened for my life, I have a right to defend my own life so if i can articulate that i am threatened it's hard for you to tell me that i wasn't and the only way you can prove that i wasn't threatened or even question my my um question my statement that i am threatened is by some kind of supportive evidence something i did before or after the incident or video recordings that show that i obviously a reasonable person under similar circumstances shouldn't have felt threatened so that's why you get acquittals on most of them. Then that's not to say that all police officers uh, get off with harming people, whatnot. There's several ones that have been convicted, and right. there's several police officers sitting in state and federal penitentiaries right now, or whatnot. But those are a few and far be- far between, or whatnot. But it goes back to the point that I was making previously. It's hard for a court or anyone or any jury to question whether an officer was threatened, felt that their life was in danger and they acted in accordance to that threat. And, and with that being said, the guy in South Carolina, um, the guy, I can't remember his name. I get all the names mixed up because it's been way too many for my liking. For sure, the I can guy, understand The that. guy that was running away from uh-huh. the police officer and got shot down. Right. I, I, I was still trying to run it through my brain. How did he get acquitted when the guy was running away from him? So I'm trying to figure out how would he still be a threat to him if he's running away. Now, once again, I'm not a police officer, so I don't know what goes to a police officer's mind, but right. in your eyes, I mean, how, how did that even happen? Um, I'm trying to piece together, like you said, it's been far too many and whatnot, and mm-hmm. just by pointing out the state of South Carolina, it's hard for me to piece together which one you're talking about, but just based off of the, um, the general information that you provided, a guy's running away from a police officer, he's caught on video running away from a police officer, and a police officer fired on him, I presume? Yeah, oh yeah, he shot, he's dead. He, he shot and killed him while he was running away from him. Running you know. away. Okay, is this the one where the police officer then gets a taser and goes and uh, throws it? The taser and throw his taser down by the guy. This not that one, right? I don't think so. I don't think that was that. Uh, one. Okay. He he was quite a bit of ways away when he was running, mm. and the police just shot him like nine or ten times. Yeah. Now me, I'm thinking, why couldn't he just shoot him in the leg, incapacitate him, and then you nah, know? Nah, I mean, nah, I, nah. like once again, I'm not a police <laughs> officer, so I don't know. No, nah, that I definitely mean, doesn't happen. But the, uh, I'll address both of those. Your first point is how can he be acquitted? Uh, I don't know the particulars on that case, but I will tell you this, that um, if the district attorney office wants to acquit, wants to uh, get a grand jury indictment on someone, they can. It's a common uh, long term and common saying within the criminal justice system that the district attorney's office can get an indictment on a ham sandwich if they wanted to. Because mm-hmm. what a grand jury indictment is, is the district attorney gets to, or his representatives, gets to present all the evidence that they want a panel of a panel of jurors to see. So they get to form the case all on their own. One-sided, lopsided case. The other party doesn't get to provide any contrary information or whatnot. So the grand, grand jury gets to present all this information and tell you how to perceive that information and tell you why you should get an indictment. So if a grand jury ever seriously wanted an indictment, they can. Now, just by getting an indictment doesn't mean that that person is going to get convicted. Indictment just means that they have enough in order for it to go through the legal process and okay. go to court, right? So we go to court. It's still hard to get a jury of 12 people to convince themselves that a police officer was not threatened and acted unreasonably. Basically, with America and with our socioeconomics, people think in terms of race, they think in terms of class, they think in terms of uh, economics or whatnot. So it's hard to get 12 distinct jurors with no bias to say that hey this police officer wasn't acting in his safety and they don't and not feel sorry for a police officer even it, with video, even with video evidence even with video evidence is still entirely hard and that's all the conviction processes uh a grand jury it goes before civilians when you go to court 
you're on a jury with right. civilians. And so no police officer in the world is going to get on the stand and say, hey, I don't want a jury trial. I want to get a trial by I a mean, judge. I mean, of course. Because yeah, a, judge, a judge will probably convict them. Right. But, you know, all you got to do, the common saying is all you got to do is win one. If you can change the mind of one juror yeah. or cast doubt in the mind of one juror, you find one that's sympathetic to what, what the uh, – what the, um, what the defense is saying, right? Um, then that's it. That's it. All you need is one to cast that doubt, and then you can't get a conviction on if you don't have a unanimous opinion in most situations. Do you think some of it has to do with they don't want to start making policemen think twice and being trigger shy and, and their own life get taken, you know, if they start convicting? By they who you're talking about? You know, I, mean, I like the jury. Okay. I mean, now so, I don't think they think that far into it. But before I get into that point, let me. Um, there was another point on your previous question about incapacitating, shooting in the leg, the yeah, arms, yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. Please touch on that for me. Hey, look, as a police officer, um, when we pull our weapon, we're pulling our weapons. When you pull a gun, a gun is listed as deadly force. So okay. when you pull a gun, we're not specifically intending to kill you. But if you die as a result of us firing our gun, then that's a circumstance that we've prepared for. Because gun is deadly force. We have several other tools on our belt or at our disposal that are not deadly force or less than lethal. You have your mace. You have your sp- uh, your baton. You have your um, your mace, your baton, your taser. You have your hand-to-hand combat. You know, you have your officer's presence. You have different levels of force that are not deadly. Once I pull my gun out, I've determined in my mind that that's the only way for me to neutralize this threat and that's what we do we shoot our guns to neutralize and we never we're not supposed to pull our gun if we're not prepared to also shoot it that's not to say that every time we pull our gun that we're going to shoot our gun but in our mind we have to be ready to shoot our guns because we don't pull our guns as a threat all that in the movies hey 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 stop this stop this and like no when we pull our gun it's a bad situation or whatnot, and it's right. best for you to comply in that immediate moment. Now, when you talk about actually shooting in the leg and something like that, that's first of all, military and police officers they train one way, one way only, and it's a very good policy. You shoot center mass yeah. of the target that you have available. So, if I got your whole body available in my view and you're a threat to me or someone else, I'm gonna shoot center mass of your whole body. That's your your chest, your torso area or whatnot. And so, I can confirm that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, if I only have a portion, let's say you hiding from, you peeking from behind a wall or whatever, or you got a leg sticking out. If your whole leg is sticking out and I got a shot and it's a situation to where I should shoot, then I'm shooting center mass of your leg. Mm-hmm. Or whatnot, and this does several things. One, it makes sure we hit our target, and two, it protects anybody who's in the backdrop. You want somebody to, you want a police officer to be shooting at a suspect who's running away and try to shoot him in his leg. Then bullets skip off concrete, and they keep going. And so you don't want to minimize our target to something so small and moving. If you're running, no matter how fast you're running, your body, your torso is staying still, right? Right. Your legs are moving, your arms are moving, but your torso generally stays still that's a solid target for me to shoot at and that's why we shoot at that and and the other consideration that you have to take into um the other point that you have to take into consideration is that at the time that we shoot our adrenaline is up our emotions is up our breathing levels up everything all of our training pretty much goes out of the window and if you've ever been in it not goes out of the window but if you've ever been in an emotional situation or a heightened psychological and physical situation where you're fighting for your life in your mind or whatnot your body results back to it loses all its fine motor skills so all that while um my heart rate is up my breathing is up and my vision is narrow and everything for me to aim at your leg during that is almost impossible. You can get professional world-class shooters and they wouldn't be able to make the shot. So you want us to aim center mass of the um, biggest target that we have available and that's the torso. So all that shooting to wound and all that stuff, like no, we shoot to neutralize the threat. And if death happened as a result of that, then so be it. Hmm, okay. Um, As you said, it's hard for a jury to convict a police officer of murder. Absolutely. So, is there realistically any way to curve the yeah. 
you know. Yeah, I think so. See, murder, the way it is written on most states' books is that murder is you have to have specific intent to kill. That means right. that when the police officer pulled his gun and shot his gun, he had the specific intent to kill that person. Specific intent, those two words mean a lot. That means I intended to kill you. But as I stated earlier, police officers, we shoot our weapons at people under those situations. We shoot to neutralize the threat. We don't have the preconceived intent to kill you. We just shoot to stop you from killing us or from killing someone else. And if you die as a result of being shot, then that's just an unfortunate uh, uh, outcome. But we didn't have the specific intent to kill you. We had the specific intent to neutralize you as a threat to us or to others or whatnot. And I know that's a little bit, it seems like semantics, but in the court of law, that's um that's very very weighty and it um that's what if the uh defense whoever's defending the police officer in court is able to articulate that to the jury in a logical manner it'll be you'd be hard to find a jury that doesn't understand that with that with that mindset right there Mm -hmm. do you think racist cops hide behind that to justify killings um I think it's a manner that they could because of the way that the system is up. But right. in reality, um, I think it's less of, I think we have to expand our vocabulary a little bit. Okay. We always, we kind of reduce everything to racism. We put yeah, everything we in the box of racism, but there's a lot of different terms. You and I were on the social media post about that a while back. Yeah. There's a lot of different terms that fit. And I think most of the times when we see these incidents on the news, it's not an incident of racism per se. It's an incident of racial insensitivity or implicit racial bias, which means that I have been conditioned to look negatively upon you based off of the way that your your people are presented in the social space, right? Mm -hmm. So TV presents um, black people as always being violent, angry, thugs, criminals, right? Right. So black people, white people, and everybody in America become conditioned in that same way to believe those same things and studies have shown that black cops have the same biases against blacks as white cops have against blacks or whatnot so a black cop patrolling the streets of any town usa it can patrol a um, predominantly black neighborhood predominantly poor neighborhood or whatnot and they have those same biases or thinking that that everybody that they patrol is criminal or up to no good and such like that while they can go to a more affluent neighborhood or maybe a predominantly white neighborhood and not get those same feelings so is i think it's more of so an instance of implicit racial bias rather than it is racism do you think the media spins it Absolutely. I mean, because all you see is white cops killing black men, but you never see the white guys getting killed by the white cops. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole purpose of the media is to sell advertisements, man. Once we realize that the media's goal is to sell advertisements, then you understand the means that they use to accomplish those goals or whatnot. A white cop killing a white guy is... Um, basically, in the eyes of the media, this is not in my opinion, but in the eyes of the media, it's pretty much who cares, right? right. Uh, a black cop kills a black guy. In the eyes of the media, who cares? But America has shown us one thing, the race sells. Whenever you're able to pit white versus black, whatever, from a media standpoint, it sells. So that's why it's perverted that way or whatnot. But that's not to say that it's all wrong. But... We, as a citizens, as the populace, as a consumer of these uh, different formats of the media, we have to be knowledgeable about the methods that they use and don't allow it to be out the sole defining information for how we shape our perspective of the world, right? So we don't just look at our forms of media and say, oh, I believe everything that this, you know, understand what the goal of the media is, take the skeleton of it and then leave all the rest take the essential information Mm -hmm. leave everything else or whatnot so i think that's up to the individual we have to start being um more cognizant and more knowledgeable with regards to the role of the media now there's a good portion of america that for some they just do not like police right yeah you know they they just don't want to deal with them they rather they just rather avoid them all together I think what can be done to help the relationship between the public and the police that's really been tarnished 
for quite a while, but it's really been really going up the last few years. Man, I don't, I don't really think it's been tarnished in the last few years. I think that's another one of those things where it's the media telling uh-huh. you that there's public discourse against the police. Because I'll tell you now, I've been a police for over 15 years, and in now, nowadays, within this last year, I've gotten more love from the public than I ever have throughout my 15 years as a police officer. So I don't think it's tarnished. That's a, that's another one of those media narratives, man. Um, but is there discourse, um, anti-police discourse, especially within our predominantly poor and disenfranchised neighborhood? Hell yeah. Is it right? It's probably not right, but is there a logic? Is there a reason why? Hell yeah. Those same neighborhoods that are disenfranchised socioeconomically have also been disenfranchised criminal in the criminal justice system as well. So if you're heavily patrolling us, if you're heavily always on our backs, always in our streets, always arresting us, always beating us down, always giving us tickets, always if you're patrolling us almost in a military like state, then then hell yeah. Um, I got a reason to not trust you. And I got a reason to be mad for you because every time I get in my car, I'm likely to get pulled over, right? But the people who live on the other side of town, a little bit more affluent side of town, do they are they getting patrolled heavier? Are there laws that are they getting pulled over? Are their kids getting stopped because their pants are sagging? Are there are they getting stopped because they're walking in the street or walking their dogs in the streets? No, but if you go into my side of the neighborhood, my people are getting stopped for walking in the streets where there's a sidewalk provided, but you can go through any other affluent neighborhood and they run in the street. You almost, you'd be mistaken. I mean, you'd be forgiven if you didn't even think they had sidewalks. But so when you heavily patrol a populace like that, then you can't blame them for not trusting you. You can't blame them for having that uh, ill perspective on you. The, The way to mitigate that, as you asked me, is to do better as to go out in these communities and build solid relationships don't heavily patrol us for nothing don't stop us for nothing don't pull us over for nothing looking for something don't assume that we're suspicious you know right a lot of um, a lot of the stops within our communities aren't happening because these people did something it's because the cops are looking for them or suspicious that they might have something so exactly. i'm pulling you over because your tail light is busted how many times have you checked your tail lights within the last five years I haven't. I you don't, don't. I don't know. How do you know your tail light me? is out until somebody tells you, right? right. But a police officer will pull you over, uh, using that as an excuse to pull you over just to search your car for weed or something because they suspect they're suspicious of you from the time that they pull you over, right? Or whatever. And then if they don't find anything, now you got to take it for a tail light. But who the hell checks their tail lights before they get in the car? How can you check your tail lights before you get in the somebody car? Somebody has to tell you. Unless you unless you got a mirror on the back of your house <laughs> and you back into it and you know it's impossible. And every time I've been told, it's been the police that told me. And Absolutely. one time a ticket to go with. I'm like, really? Absolutely. I'm, like, Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm military. I'm not saying that's giving no excuse, but mm-hmm. I'm not trying to home. I'm trying to go home. But that's one of the things that need to stop within our uh, community. I'm all about uh, police reform, man. And I think one of the things that needs to be reformed is we need to completely study and get away with pretextual stops. And what a pretextual stop is, is that I don't really plan on, I ain't really care about you having a broken taillight, but I'm stopping you because I think you might have dope in your car. Why do you think I might have dope in your car, in my car? Because I'm driving a Cutlass? Because I'm in a predominantly black neighborhood, you're just going to assume that I have dope, and now you're using this as a reason. And not a lot of police officers will tell you that they do this, but I'm here to tell you that this is done daily, day in and day out. And it's one of the primary primary reasons for traffic stops within predominantly black and poor neighborhoods is pretextual stops to see if you got anything else wrong so I can get an arrest off of you. You know, I got pulled over when I first came from the military in California. From California, mm-hmm. I was in South Side of Longview, no, all black. It was nighttime. I'm driving. God pulls me over. He did, you know, I was at a stop sign. I saw him behind me, so you know I'm not to do a California roll. Absolutely. So I took off. He pulled me over. Said so he did a California roll. <laughs> I said no, I didn't. I said I see you behind me. I'm not stupid enough to roll through the stop sign. You behind me? Okay. You got any drugs in the car? Was a probable cause for a California road. <laughs> and but he went ahead. He said, "Man, you know, you got California plates, and this time of night, this is a heavy truck." 
I mean, that's one of those. You know. That's one of those federal laws, man. Uh, I think it was under the Clinton administration and whatnot, in their expansion of um, the three strikes rules and all that stuff. One of the laws was that um, that was passed was that if you're in a high drug area. Mm-hmm. then it lowers the barriers of suspicion that an officer needs in order to stop you and question you about your activities, right? So in a city like Shreveport, 50% of the city is a high drug area. That means at almost at any point in time, a cop can stop you and pull you over and claim it as being because you're in a high drug area. Tell me where a high drug area isn't in Shreveport. Duh. What maybe what North Bolger? You know what I really don't. Every know. every neighborhood in the city <laughs> really of Shreveport, every neighborhood in the city of Bolger is a high drug area because drugs is not just marijuana, it's not just crack, and drugs opioids. Right. The biggest addiction, um, the biggest uh, drug crisis that America has ever had is the opioids addiction. It's three times the size of the crack epidemic that they claim was an epidemic at the in the eighties or whatnot, late seventies, early eighties or whatnot, or whatever the opioid addiction. People, uh, sixty five over sixty five thousand people died from opioid overdose. Last year alone, over sixty-five thousand people, or whatever. That's an opioid addiction. That's the, um, so drugs. The entire city, the entire America, is a high drug area. So that law allows them to disproportionately patrol certain neighborhoods and to use it as a context for us to stop you and to question you and treat you with suspicion. And then it holds up in court because you're in a high drug area. Well, you know why we've been discussing. DJ Marley, the bro, has stepped in here and joined us. Yeah. What's good <laughs> with you, man? Like a, a great conversation. Oh, man, we're getting oh, deep. Man. Can you hear me? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to get you turned up. Yeah. Nope, still ain't got you. Oh, man. Man, he's checking in. He's going to get the sound levels right. Share a mic with something. Nothing? Can I hear me? No. No. Y'all ain't got a straight man? Let me move this mic up. Give one second. Okay, we back. We had to get DJ Marley the bro straight. Oh yeah. Now, now you could come on in now, man. You got me. We we got you. We oh, got yeah, you. I'm back, man. Let me tell you something. This when I came in, I already seen it. I was like, oh, this finna be a good one. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, like I seen uh, I seen my man talking over here, and I was like, oh, this sounds like a very informative conversation. I'm finna learn something right hey, now. Man, I I I, I beat no bushes. I bite no tongues. I am a police officer. That's what we and, need. And um, I'll give you the information, guys. Look, Straight I come from, from these mouth. I come from these communities or whatnot. So I've been on the opposite side of that gun. Uh, the very first encounter that I direct encounter that I had with a police officer in uh, my home city was on the opposite end of a police officer's gun. And I'll tell you the story real quick. Um, my younger sister and I, I'm probably about 15, 16 years old. I'm grab- driving my grandfather's uh, Cutlass. Uh, we go to St. Vincent Mall. I just uh, cashed my little Burger King check, whatever. I got my younger sister in the car with me. She's about 14, 15 years old at the time. Um, we're leaving the mall parking lot. I'm a young driver. I forgot to turn on my headlights, I presume. So as we leave the mall parking lot, they pull me over right at the street that services the mall or whatnot. And uh, three police cars get a um, jump behind us. Obviously, I'm 15. I probably weigh 125, 35 pounds or whatnot. Uh, my sister's in the car. She's 14, 15, weighs less than I do or whatnot. But the very first thing they do, they pull me over a gun less than six inches away from my head or whatnot. And they're talking to me with your gun on my head, asking me, you know, what the F I'm doing, where am I going, and all this other stuff. I just left them all. And I saw them in the mall. They were eating at Piccadilly in the mall. I saw them as we was leaving out or whatever. We ain't doing anything. I just forgot to turn my headlights on or whatnot. But um, so I've been in those situations. I grew up in the Hollywood neighborhoods or whatnot, and I've, I've seen heavy-handed police and I've seen brutality. As a police officer, I've seen police officers go beyond that line. And and if I'm being honest, uh, I've seen it happen and a very enlightening moment happen uh, in my life where I'm seeing a police officer um abuse someone who has already given up already been in handcuffs or whatnot and another police officer a white police officer stopped this other white police officer from continuing the action of assaulting this um this young man that was being arrested this young man was being arrested for a felony offense everything's but he had already been tackled he had already been taken into custody but this police officer continued to pound on him even though he was in custody. And a white police officer stopped his brother and says, uh, stopped his other police officer. And the moment for me was that later I'm asking myself, why did the white cop have to stop him? And why did not say anything? You know? 
Mm-hmm. So, and that started changing my whole perspective on how I policed and what I would put up with as a police officer. Sometimes we have to go through moments like that in order for us to self-identify and mm-hmm. to um, move forward. But that was very, um, that was a moment of growth for me. So what made you even become a police officer in the first place? Man, um, it started, I, I knew I didn't want to go to college. I, I did well in school. Mm-hmm. I graduated the top 10% of my class and whatnot. I was a straight A student up until I found out about girls and boobs and stuff. Yeah, and then, you ain't the only one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, man. So, um, but I grew up poor as well. So I decided that college wasn't going to put money in my pocket right away. I couldn't, I couldn't afford to wait four years to get some money in my pocket, maybe. So I decided I was going to go to the military, get my college while I was there, but also learn a trade and get money in my pocket. I feel like I could kill two birds with one stone mm-hmm. by going to the military. So as early as 10th grade, I signed up for the Army. My mom had to sign a waiver because I was too young to sign up for myself right. or whatever. But I knew that was what I wanted to do. So 10th grade, I signed up for the Army. And once it came time to um, raise my right hand, they take you into a room and they say, well, these are all the jobs you qualify for. What do you want to do? And so I look around the room and whatnot, and it just so happened they had a poster of a police officer, an Army police officer in SWAT gear, you know, the helmet, the uh, gun, all black. I was like, I want to do that. And I never got the chance to do that the whole time I was oh, in the military. <laughs> but they did make me a military policeman, man, and I'm, I'm very glad for that decision that I made because I, um, I got some invaluable, invaluable training and experience enforcing federal and state law. I did AWOL apprehensions. I was a criminal investigator for the army or whatnot went to some dope investigation schools to the point where i got out of the military and i came to the civilian law enforcement side of things and they would ask me uh we had to go through the academy or whatnot and we had to get these different forms of training and everything i had already been trained on everything so i'm sitting in the academy like dang i really gotta be here right i was like yeah you gotta be here and i was like damn so (laughs) so i had to go through it all again but that's how i became a police officer just um by way of the army got anything marley oh yeah so i was wondering um, what's the demographic as far as black? Because I know we talk we talk a lot about like white police officers, black person encounter, right? Mm-hmm. What is the demographic of black police officers um, in Shreveport? Oh man. That's a very good question, man. The mm-hmm. demographics for us, we just about 50-50 split. The good mm-hmm. thing about the Shreveport Police Department um, is that your local police department almost exactly represents the the demographics of the city itself almost exactly i think um and these are very crude numbers don't hold me to it but i'm pretty sure that we're somewhere in the ballpark of these numbers or whatnot as far as the black demographics of officers is about uh, almost at 50 percent. i think we're like 40 between 46 to 49 percent black and the rest is white and we have one of the highest population of female officers mm. in the southern states of america or whatnot so we have a lot of females mm. and we have a uh a, uh almost a 50 50 split between black and white on the police department or whatnot so i think that bodes very well if you look at the cities like ferguson missouri you look at baltimore and you look at um minnesota and you look at some of the police departments that have been under the consent decrees or whatnot like baton rouge and seattle shreveport was on one on, on a, under a federal consent degree for 30 years as well but you look at the police departments that's been in the news mm-hmm. the reason why they've been in the news in my opinion is because their demographics don't match the city that they patrol and a lot that of those officers not only the demographics but a lot of those officers come from towns outside of there they don't even live in those towns exactly. they police in i call them tourist cops nah. they <laughs> they police they commute into the city patrol the city for eight to 12 hours Mm -hmm. and then they go back to a town outside of the city limits or whatnot Uh, and when you have that you don't understand the community you don't understand the people you don't understand the demographics you don't understand the cultural idiosyncrasies so it's hard for you to police these people and that's vital to successful police work you have to know the community that's exactly why i asked because that was that was going to lead into my next question like what would what would it take to recruit more black officers or, or mm-hmm. as a matter of fact why do you think there's not uh like a like a parallel mm-hmm. with the the community mm-hmm. I, i'm gonna use shreveport as an example because mm-hmm. i mean from what i see shreveport is predominantly black you know it is so now I, so i would think mm-hmm. i would think you know if you really want to police shreveport you would use more black police officers Mm -hmm. so is it like a like a manpower thing and if so what is stopping 
what do you, well, what do you think is stopping mm-hmm. um, more black recruitment in the police department? Uh, here, I don't think we have a problem with it. Like I said, the okay. number is increasing. We're almost at a perfect match of our um, of our city's demographics or whatnot. Here, I don't think we have a problem with it. In other cities, I think it's just because of their hiring practices or whatnot. They're just they're prioritizing particular people for particular reasons. Mm. And if you look at it, if you look at federal studies, um, each one of these cities like Baltimore and um, Ferguson or whatever, the um, Department of Defense went in and they did federal studies on these police departments and found out that that was one of the primary issues is that the hiring practices were skewed towards Caucasian male officers or whatnot. So that's what they got. And the results of that are you get a lot of people patrolling predominantly black, predominantly poor neighborhoods, and they don't know the culture and they don't care to know the culture of those neighborhoods. Neighborhoods. So there's the disconnect because we don't know each other. And it's not that black people can't be policed by white cops. You just got to be familiar with our cultural culture and respectful of that, right? And so, uh, and black officers have to do the same thing. As long as you know someone's culture and you can respect it, now we can talk on an even plane. We can deal with each other on the end of the plane because you're not going to step on me. I'm not going to step on you. It's like you've been, I'm. Just throwing it out there, I don't know that you are, but let's say you're a Christian or whatnot, but your friend invites you to a um, Muslim mosque or whatever. If you're going to go in, wouldn't it be wise for you to go in dressed in the traditional garb that they were dressing? You respect their culture, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to believe in their culture to respect it. And the same thing goes with policing and every other aspect of American life or whatever. If we can respect each other's culture, then we can communicate on a heightened level. And that's what's missing in a lot of America's cities is that the police forces don't care to respect the culture. Mm. I had a, uh, another question, which is kind of off topic, but it's not. Bring it, what, man. What What was going on with that um that one dude that was a cattle sheriff? When <laughs> Steve he was Friday? like, hey. yeah. <laughs> like when he was like, yo, these guys do good work. I don't ever want to release them. Like, oh yeah, please like, expound. Please, yo, what was up with that? Because that made, I mean, it made. Donkey of the day on 105, you know, it blew up, Charlemagne. Man. Like I was like, Shreveport is making donkey today. What? If, this is a problem. Yeah, like yeah. we need to address this. I mean, I think that's a, one of those uh, classic cases of a bigot um, not knowing that they are. So you can say something, you have the best intention, but you you don't realize that it's dumb until afterwards. You know. Mm. So um, perhaps um, <laughs> perhaps that's what it is, man. I don't I don't know. It's just my deduction, man. There's a it was a very um, racially insensitive uh, thing to say. Then, I, w- I would say that. So I won't say that he's a bigot or anything, but I'll say he's, that was definitely racially insensitive. And then old boy from the, uh, the Texas, the owner, was like, we can't let the presidents run this. Uh, yeah, man. Another, <laughs> another inc- incidence of racial man, insensitivity and on? cultural insensitivity. Yeah. You have to understand that predominantly um, your predominant population or your prison populations are African-American males. Even though we only represent 14% of the American population, we represent a great percentage of the prison population or whatnot. So when you talk mm-hmm. like that, you have to re- you understand who you're talking about. And you're talking about predominantly African-Americans and colored people or whatnot. Or There's whatnot. a good movie on that on Netflix called 13. Yeah, the documentary, man. I, I read, I, I watched the movie and it's based Ooh. off of a book called uh, The New Jim Crow written by Michelle Alexandra. She actually makes a cameo in the in the documentary as well, okay. but I agree with you. It's a really dope documentary. Oh, yeah. If y'all love it, if y'all love it get a chance, definitely check out the 13th on, on uh, Netflix. That explains a lot when it comes to the criminal um, and uh, justice system. And outside of that, man, get into documentaries, y'all, man. I that's all I watch on Netflix now is documentaries. I love I, documentaries, man. I'm anything that, yeah, if you can, if I watch a movie, I don't, that's why I don't like fiction books, man. I don't. Yeah. I feel like, what's the point of reading a book that you can't use any information afterwards? Right. Like, no matter how many trilogies and series of new moon true blood harry potter or whatever i can't apply any of that to my regular life i can't apply it to my regular life right but if i'm reading if i'm watching a documentary or if i'm reading a book on socioeconomics or sociology or psychology or something like that it makes me wiser as an individual it makes it me more capable of communicating and um it's something that i can i can use so I'm I'm so deep in the documentaries right now, man. Any documentary, I walk a documentary on whale farts if they had one. <laughs> I want to know, man. I love information, man. <laughs> a, a couple man. things I want to touch on before we wrap up. One, 
Uh, I haven't been too up on the story of the um, the police chief and, and, and what's going on with yeah, him. Yeah, man. So can you touch on that for us and your you, opinion about it? Be specific. Tell me what you want to know about it, man. I, I need you to be specific on this one. Right. <laughs> Whatever you know. All right. I think it's, um, it's one of those cases where um, – I really think it all stems from rising crime, man. And here's the thing. I'm glad you brought that up. I get to mention rising crime. But a lot of people feel like crime is rising in the city of Shreveport, right? You feel like that? You feel like crime is rising and getting out of hand? You feel like A lot of people feel I, like that. I or definitely feel I think, like, it, I think it's been the same. I think maybe it's just getting more publicity now. But, right. You know. But I think that's where it comes from. If you look at uh, other municipalities all across America, whatever, when the crime is rising, Shreveport in 2015, I think 2014 to 2015, we had 22 homicides for the year. The mm-hmm. year prior to the year that I'm referencing, we only had about 23 to 24 homicides of the year. So we had got used to in that two-year span of having 23, 22, low 20s in homicides, and now we're at like 50 or whatever. So we pretty much doubled. We almost we doubled the numbers from only a couple of years ago or whatever. So people see that as a rising crime. And whenever you see that, all across America, you start – the police chief is the, part, is, the part, uh, is the part that people start pointing their finger at. Rightfully or not, one, I am of the uh, opinion that – it's so appropriate that um, police sirens go on in yeah, the background, no, right? That would happen. Yeah. <laughs> Rightfully or not, I do not feel that um, I do not feel that police officers have the ability to stop a crime before it happens. There's nothing that I can do to stop you from killing him if you wanted to before it happens, right? No amount of police. What can I do to stop someone else from murdering someone? Uh, homicides are a crime of passion, it's a crime of uh, intimacy. They happen from people who have close connections, more often than not, close connections with each other and then heightened emotions, and they're very spontaneous, right? Uh, so there's little that police can do, but from the public perspective, the police chief and the police department are responsible for keeping crime and stuff at bay and cr- keeping criminals in jail. So when crime when the perception of rising crime occurs, that's who they start pointing at. And I think that was the case that happened with the city council is that they also start pointing in that direction as well. And if I'm being honest, it came from, I think it all stemmed prior to us looking at it from a crime perspective, the city council and some other people were looking at it from a, um, just a policy uh, perspective, political perspective. They saw, Everybody, they publicized I can talk about it, so it was publicized on the news, right? Um, the police chief, um, when they started to hire for the police um, chief position, they had everybody take tests to get the position, right? And a couple of people scored high on those tests or whatnot, and then the one that, they, that the mayor ended up picking as police chief scored considerably low on the test or whatnot. So they were already, it had already soured the opinion of a couple of people, why even have this process if if, if it doesn't weigh very much on mm-hmm. your decision, right? So, and then you couple that with rising crime, and then you couple that with uh, other perceptions in politics, whatever. I think that's where it all comes from or whatnot. And I don't have a position on it one way or another. I think uh, our police chief is doing the best he can with the resources that he has at his, at his availability and at his disposal. And I'll cut it off by saying that... Um, what needs to change, in my opinion, is the policy of how the police chief is essentially under the thumb of the mayor. Gotcha. Here right. in our city. Some of the police departments and municipalities, they have what's called a police commissioner. Mm-hmm. Police commissioner is an elected official. So he's elected just as well as the mayor is elected. So now I can sit across the table and say, we need this, we need that, we need this. But we don't have that in our city. So our police chief is under the thumb of the mayor, and he can't do anything or say anything or lobby for anything, even if it's in the best interest of the public or for the police department, if it's contrary to what the mayor's policy is, because the mayor can remove you from your position. So if the mayor is your boss and has your, her finger on you, then... How, how hard can you go? Yeah. So even when our police union was lobbying for raises, when the whole time you've been a city citizen of the city of Shreveport, when have you heard the police chief say that the police officers need a raise? I don't think you, I have. You don't. 
because <laughs> yeah. it's not politically it's not politically wise for him to do so because the mayor will yank your job from you. You know what I'm saying? And that's why I think if anything needs to change, they need to change the policy and make the police department a little bit more autonomous and operate outside of the mayor's office and have a little bit more clout and ability to speak for itself without fear of reprisal. So I think that's part of the issue. But I think uh, our police chief, and this is not just smoke, I think he's doing the absolute best job that he can with the tools that he has at his disposal or whatnot. And it's just unfortunate that he doesn't have many tools. Wait, Marley, got anything? Because if he don't, I, I know I got another question for him. It ain't, hey. it ain't police related, but. Man, I, I got the question. It, it, it kind of seemed like, me personally, I feel like the answer is just match the demographic of the job to the people. I mean, like, I know that anytime, I know when I was in the military, whenever, whatever the demographic of, okay, I'll, I'll put it like, I'll just be real with you. Bring it. I, there was, there was, I was in a shop, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it was a predominantly black shop. Mm-hmm. So guess what? We had a, we had um, the leaders, like the, the, the high ranking officials, you know, they were black. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, we, Man, we was winning awards. We was we was getting it. Like, man, we was the best in like the squadron. That's you know the excellence. Saying? That's like, the excellence. And it just seemed like we just we just gelled together. And like mm-hmm. to this, and this was like this is like a p- couple years ago. But when I talk to these military buddies, to this day, we start we always talk about that golden era, like how like hip hop, like in the, in the early nineties, we always talk about man that golden era when it was when when this person was running it. You know what I'm saying? Like you know, and that's not any shade to 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 white people you know right I mean? but it just seemed like when you have somebody that looks like you everybody just gels well you know um they gel they just gel together a lot quicker and, and a lot better you know absolutely so, man it's I, and that's what I, I don't know if you ran on that point yet but that's, well, well my point was yeah. my point was uh-huh. why don't they just hire people that look like Shreveport uh-huh. We are. And that's my point. From the city of Shreveport, on, on America scale, I say, yes, you should do that. And um, but and the federal government, the Department of Defense and the um, Federal Bureau of Investigations and all the departments, agencies that have a concerted interest in our police departments and our cities um, looking and performing as they should and matching the demographics of their city. They've they've um, they've noted that as fact as well if you look like your city if you're from your city and you look like your city or whatnot um normally you have a better hand on policing and you have a a um you start from a higher platform and you have a better ability ability to properly police the demographics without having these mass incidents of discourse right so take Baton Rouge for instance and Shreveport was under it too so for the last Shreveport just got from under this uh, consent decree in 2015 back as far as like the 70s Shreveport was under a federal mandate that they had to bring up their hiring practices to recruit and hire more black and colored officers so that they can match the demographics of the city not only was Shreveport under this consent decree every major police department in the state of Louisiana was under this same decree or whatnot so Baton Rouge is still under the consent decree to this day and they're over 40 years that they've been under this consent decree and now they're um, the federal government and the city of Baton Rouge they're trying to figure out what happens now because we gave you 30 years and you still haven't met the goal of making your police department look like your city or whatnot so what do we do now um so just like city of shreveport is under a federal mandate that they got to fix their water lines or whatever and they got to pay these fines and stuff until they fix their water lines that's what the consent decree as far as their hiring practices come from too and the reason why shreveport is not no longer under the consent decree is because the federal government said that you've made enough progress you're advancing in the goal that we had. So we were able to come out for our consent decree. Gotcha. Baton Rouge is off of That's why I say in the city of Shreveport, I don't think we have that problem like we have in other cities. We did have that problem, but currently I don't think we do. I'm going to get with her. Y'all uh, get to the conversation, man. If you want me back in, I'll be back in on it, brother. Oh, ain't no problem. No problem, man. So since um, Marcus Mitch had to step out for a second, um, DJ Marley, what you been up to lately, man? Oh, man. 
well, y'all have to call me schoolboy Marley now because I'm in college, you know? <laughs> yeah. Doing my thing. Okay, schoolboy Marley. Yeah, man. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm out here, man, still DJing. I DJ uh, around the area, mm-hmm. uh, Texas and uh, Louisiana. Um, DJing down the street at Chicago. I'm be there this weekend. Okay. You know, Saturday night. Okay. Man, let me tell you something. I got up in that club and I tore it down, man. I got up in there. They was like, oh, we need to keep him. You know what I mean? They finally recognized. So now you have changed the whole atmosphere of the club. Is, it, is mm-hmm. that safe to say? I mean, I haven't been. I had planned on coming mm-hmm. very soon. Mm-hmm. Come up there and support you and check you out, man. Yeah. See you. See what you're doing. Oh, See yeah. how many people sitting at in the chair when you play your music. <laughs> oh, you got jokes. I'm telling you, man. As soon as I get on, I'm talking about people running to the dance floor. You feel me? And um, it's crazy, man, because uh, I-, I got there and uh, I had a certain style of DJ. You know, I'll DJ and I MC. Like I get on the mic as mm-hmm. well as DJ. And um, you know, I'm just I'm just keep it real. The owner of the club is white. You know I mean, and he had a, a certain, a certain uh, <laughs> demographic of people that he wanted to keep in there, and you know, mm-hmm. um, I guess, I guess, long story short, he just, he just, he didn't want me. To, he didn't want it to turn into an all black like club. Like a some some hood. Like, he didn't want you know it to saying? be Coco Pillars Part Two. Basically, you know what I'm saying? I was like, I was like, hey, bro, like. Well, are I'm you gonna, making money? That's. Are you man, packing the club? I'm out? talking about. So, so this is, here's the funny thing, right? So uh-huh. I'm in class, and uh, you know, college or whatever, and I got a, I got a classmate. You know, we were hanging out and stuff like that. That classmate has a mutual, like, a, like another friend. So that friend, she's like, um, yeah, I got this. You know, I got this. You know, I got this friend. He's a DJ. Da 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 da. And uh, he DJs at Chicago. And they're like, wait, I know a, a black guy that DJs Chicago. He like the only black DJ. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you talk, why well, you talking about that same dude? Yeah, it must be. Yeah, oh, it's the same dude. You know what I mean? And um, so the point I'm trying to make is I spoke to this guy, right? And he was just like, listen, let me tell you something. People been buzzing about you. Like, people been talking about Because I, I could ask my friends and I'd be like, hey, what y'all think? You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, man, like, people been packing out now that you in there and people been talking da da da. But, you know, these are my friends and I respect their opinion, but it's almost going to be a little bit biased, you know? So I had to get the opinion of someone who I didn't even know. And he told me the same exact thing. He was just like, yo, let me tell you something, fam. People been buzzing. People been like, yo, there's a new. DJ in that club now, and he got that joint lit. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So um, that's pretty much what is what it's been, man. And but I've been, you know, just basically chipping away at success. You know, that's that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. So when when you in the club, mm-hmm. do you got pretty much a playlist on what you gonna play, or you just or it just strictly just goes off who's in the club, mm-hmm. the demographics, and you kind of just go on the fly. Uh, so what I do as a DJ, right, is I have a ton of playlists that I've made over the years, right, and uh-huh. I and I continue to make new playlists and add new music mm-hmm. to certain playlists. I use the playlist like a deck of cards, right? Mm-hmm. You ever play poker or, or you know? What yeah, saying? poker, you, you know, know spades, whatever. Exactly, yeah. and you have a deck of cards now. I could play this card, I could play that card, but I'm not necessarily gonna play. Every card, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I'm, you know, I, actually, I'm not, I'm not a poker player myself because I, I don't know if you play every card. Do you play every card or? I don't even play poker. Okay, got you. But I'm, I'm guessing. Well, basically, the point I'm trying to make is just like you, you got cards to play. Some you, some you play, some you don't. You know, and that's pretty much what I do. Um, I visually look at the crowd, and I say, okay, this is the demographic of people in there. Let me throw this song out. I mean, if it if it goes, if that song, if if I see people dancing, I'm like, I got your ass. Now I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna keep going off that you know that same the same type of song, you know. So that's pretty much how I do it. Most good DJs, if you're a good DJ, you could kind of just glance at the crowd and see, okay, this is probably what they want. And I'm a that's kind of the fun of it. Also, is mm-hmm. you kind of just throw something out there and you say, let me see if it sticks, you know. So that's pretty much. Um, how I DJ, you know? Right. But, you, but usually you have a, 
yeah, general, yeah, you do. A general it, idea of what Even you when want I used play. to do it for a little while, I, I had a few songs I knew I was going to play. Mm-hmm. I was just saving them for the right moment. And right. then some songs I was going to try out and see if it works and see if it don't work. Exactly. And if it don't, I just kind of just fade it you out. Fade and, it out, and, you know? So you, I think you got your, your go-to songs. Oh, yeah. You got your trial songs. Let me tell you something. You know, when I play, what's that song? Uh, with Cardi B? Oh, Bodak Yellow. Man, that Bodak, that Bodak Yellow. Let me tell you something, man. I'm talking about every single word to this song. Every girl know it. And they sing it with passion. You know, like it was them, you right. know? So, um, that song, um, what other song? I know when um, when Rake It Up came out, that was a hot one. I like playing a lot of twerk songs. I like I love playing twerk songs. But, uh, I imagine you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love playing the twerk songs. The twerk songs, is, I can roll with those. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. But, man, that's that's pretty much what I've been doing. Well, we welcome know? Marcus Mitchell back. He does have a business he got to operate, so he had to step away for a second. Oh man, I got a question on that though. Uh, I noticed that that Bodak Yellow it goes hard, mm-hmm. and whenever it's played and it's dropped in the club environment or whatnot. Mm-hmm. When's the last time you heard a had a female song that went as hard as that? What was the last female song that went as hard as Bodak Yellow? That goes? went as hard as Bodak Yellow. Yeah, that man. gets the re- like the the first the first thing that comes to my mind is Nicki Minaj, and that's. You know, I might be biased because I'm from I'm a Queens native myself. Hey, She's from Queens, hey. you know. Shouts out to uh, Nas. But uh, you know, she got a lot of songs that that go hard. Remy Ma is another one. See, the difference between Remy Ma and Nicki Minaj is Remy Ma seems like she's just a straight spitter. You mm-hmm. know, she mm-hmm. just listen. I'm gonna get on this track and I'm gonna be she, the best. She's not a character. You yeah, know, she's she's, she's just an MC, and she's this is just, just what MC. I do. Period. I'm going to be the best. You know I mean? If it's going to be me, you, and you on this track, I'm going to murder everybody. And that's that's pretty much what it seems like her goal is, right? But Nicki Minaj, it seems like she's trying to reach out to everyone. You know, mm-hmm. I, I need everyone to be able to, to sing this song, you know? And it seems like she, she does things that's more melodic, you know, pop. But don't get it twisted. I've been saying since since I since I've known about Nicki Minaj in 08, 09, I'm like, yo, she is a hawk. She's a spitter. Yeah, she's she a pop is, star, she but she's spit. definitely but a she's spitter. She she rides MC, with him. Exactly. Remember MC? that monster verse? Oh man, to this day, people start talking about the monster verse. You know what I'm saying? Because if you look at it like Iggy Azalea, right? Iggy Azalea was a pop rapper, but guess what? She ain't had no skills. Mm-hmm. She wasn't a she wasn't a spitter. I mean, and because she wasn't a spitter, what happened? She kind of she she came through, and then she left. Now, now where, where is she at now? Don't nobody hear about her. They nobody mm. bumping. Uh, I'm so fancy. I don't hear that no more. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> what's the what's your follow up? You know what I mean? Maybe right. maybe I'm wrong, but I don't hear nothing that she doing now. But Nicki Minaj and Remy Ma, they they continue to they continue to um to to do bigger and better things, and people forget. That like people always like I know there's a lot of people who you know wasn't uh, on the Remy Ma train when she back when she came out and stuff like that. I mean, talking, when she was on Terror Squad. Oh yeah, there's there's people there's mm-hmm. people I mean there's people that's just like yo who's this new chick Remy Ma? You know what I mean like <laughs> and it's like yo if you damn she ain't new she been out for man, yeah. she been out for the longest. You remember um Annie up when did that come out like oh. One? No, any that was like that's like ninety nine. Yeah, ninety nine. Like that was yeah. a, a while back. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So like, you know, Remy Ma been out here. You know? So, um, but what had what? But what was the sequence of events? Right? Remy Ma, she did a thing. Terror Squad walk around the metal detectors. You know, with the whole what was the lean back song? And then yeah. what happened? She got locked up. Got locked up for some years got, and came out. Up. And right before she got locked up, it was. Um, she had she had a, a album that came out and it was popping and I remember mm-hmm. like everybody was bumping especially in New York and then she got locked up and it's so funny how that's when Nicki Minaj started to bubble out and then like you know all them years that Remy Ma was locked up she was you know building and building and grinding and building and you know pop songs and stuff like that so my here's my question if Remy Ma was not locked up. 
where would Nicki Minaj be? A megastar. I feel, I feel like Nicki Minaj's her trajectory and her status is um, it was tailor made for her man I think she had the right personality she had the right mind she had the right business acumen like she took every opportunity with the right people and the right people and she took every opportunity and she magnified it and I don't even say with the right people because Baby and Birdman and Cash Money and them they've been effing over people but the people who succeed in that kind of model is the same people who succeed under Puffy's model the ones who can do it for themselves like i'll give you the resources but you got to get out there and do the work yourself mm-hmm. remy i mean nikki was able to do that drake was able to do that right. so while everybody else getting stiff they still able to make they make their dollars because they knew how to put in their work on their own they didn't rely on the cash money machine it's like hey you can distribute us you can push us out you can call us under your brand or whatever but i'm gonna still go put this work in like she took american idol gigs and stuff like she had the business acumen I think Remy Ma has the ceiling just because she's not she's not she's not marketable as a pop star. She's yeah. only marketable as, as a, a MC. As a MC. as a killer MC. Right. They almost market her in the same way they market dudes. You know. Yeah. But you uh Nikki had that all-American pop that eccentric personality that drew you in. Then she had the look and then she was sexy. You know what I'm saying? She used her sex appeal to get there. Like Remy Ma ain't never really had sex appeal. She might wear some sexy stuff, but she didn't have have sex appeal. Like Nikki, you can just look at her and then you have ungodly thoughts. Mm -hmm. You don't have that with Remy Ma. So I think Nikki would still be able to survive it. I mean, I don't know. New York is very competitive, so they probably would have killed her off in New York. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, where would she be? Would she be as hot? Would she be as big if there there was a Remy Ma in the picture? You know what I mean? But um, definitely throughout the years, you know, uh, with, with Nicki Minaj, I remember when she first came out and she was wearing the wild stuff and people were just like yo who's this girl people were like oh her, her voice is annoying and stuff <laughs> like that i'm like listen i don't care how annoying her voice is i don't care if she wear meat suits and and crazy colored uh dresses or whatever she's a spitter mm-hmm. point blank period she's a spitter like she goes hard on the track, you know what I mean, but maybe I'm biased because I'm from Queens and she's from Queens. I don't know. No, no, you, you, you ain't too too off off base. Yeah, but um, woo, but we don't hit an hour. What's up? As I said, man, we don't hit us an hour. Okay, yeah. So yeah. now, man, we about to wrap this up. Uh, Marcus Mitch had to go take care of some more business, but uh, we really enjoyed talking to him about policing in America, police brutality, and being a policeman. DJ Marley came in and blessed the show. We got a little hip hop talk in, so this turned out to be a very productive show. Oh yeah. So from um, from myself and DJ Marley, you know what, man? Lately, you know we've been having artists on. They've been playing their songs at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. So we gonna do we gonna put a spin on it. So you gonna give us a song to end the show out on, and, and that's gonna be it. It, it don't even matter what it is, man. The first song that pops in my head, and it might be weird, but it's Working My Shoulders by Big Fella. That's what we're going to go out on? <laughs> I don't oh, know. Okay, no, that's cool. I don't that's know cool. Why, I, mean, I mean, he's a local artist. He's an underground artist. So, yeah. you know, we always about helping them first. So, right. that's what it is. Introduce it, and that's going to be it. This is DJ Marley, and here is Working My Shoulders by Big Fella. Already. Take over. We out of here. Oh, what up? What up? Welcome to the live Big Fella Talk Show. Oh, yeah. And I'm Big Fella. Hold up. You know I got a little fella with me. Cameraman, drunk man. Yeah. And ugly fella. You know. Oh, yeah. We live now. But what up? You know I walk in. Working my shoulder. Oh, work out. You know I walk. You know I walk in, working my shoulder. Yeah. You know I walk.
know I walk in working my shoulder. You know I walk in working my shoulder. You know I walk in working my shoulder. But work out. You know I walk in working my shoulder. Yeah, that cameraman get it. Check out her shoulder, what she doing it to her shoulder. You know I walk in, working my shoulder. 